Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the International History Department event at this year's LSE Literary Festival. My name's Paul Stock, and I'm a lecturer in the International History Department. This afternoon's session is called Branching Out, the Life and Work of Vince Diderot. And 2013 is obviously the 300th anniversary of Diderot's birth, so it seems, I think, quite appropriate for us to be talking about him um, at this year's festival. I'm joined um, this afternoon by three experts on 18th century history and culture, and together we'll be discussing various aspects of Diderot's career and life before inviting you know, the audience to, take quest- to uh, ask questions at the end of the session. Firstly, we're very pleased, um, in the middle of our panel here, to welcome Professor Russell Goldborn from the University of Leeds. Russell's Professor of Early Modern French Literature, and he's the author of the book Voltaire Comic Dramatist, as well as translations of Diderot's The Nun and Rousseau's Reveries of the Solitary Walker in the Oxford World's Classic series. Dr Tim Hoxchancer on my left is Senior Lecturer in International History here at LSE, He specialises in the relationship between intellectual life and political action in the history of early modern Europe, and he's the author of Natural Law Theories in the Early Enlightenment, published by Cambridge University Press. And lastly at the end is Dr Paul Keenan, who's also a lecturer in international history at LSE, and he's an expert on 18th century Russia, and his forthcoming book about the construction of St Petersburg is due out later this year, I believe, with Paul Grave Macmillan. So we've got quite a number of different um, topics here that we want to collectively discuss, reflecting each of our panellists' specialisms. But I think the the best place, perhaps, to start thinking about Diderot is to start to think about his early life. And I wonder, Russell, if you might give us an introduction to who this man was, where he came from, where he was educated, um, and some of those sort of early contexts that are important to think about where he was coming from. Sure, absolutely. Um, Diderot spent most of his career in Paris, unlike his contemporaries Voltaire and Rousseau, who uh, fled for different reasons Paris. But nevertheless, he started in the provinces, and the provincial background is perhaps important. It's something that he comes back to, his origins he comes back to, even when he's writing the Encyclopédie, which we'll probably talk about later on. He was born in the town of Langres, which is a, uh, southeast of Paris, about 150 miles southeast of, of Paris. And it's certainly in, in medieval times, it was an important uh, frontier town, which by this period, of course, with France pushing its border further eastwards, had become a rather um, down at heel provincial town. But um, nevertheless, the, his family was particularly. Uh, well-placed in that town. His father was a master cutler. His mother came from a family of tanners. So they were quite well-placed in this relatively um, relatively minor provincial town. He uh, was educated there then. His formal education started at the age of 10. And as with most boys in 18th century France, he was educated by the Jesuits. So the Jesuit College in Langres, which is now called the Collège de Dreux. Um, and so there he would have had about three or four years education, primarily in Latin. Um, it wasn't deemed uh, important to actually study French, French language itself. So he would have had a conventional classical education. Um, and... From, uh, from there, he, um, 
he moved to Paris to continue his education in, I think, 1728, I think he moved to, to Paris um, and uh, studied uh, rhetoric and philosophy and studied theology as well at the, at the Sorbonne. Um, so part of Diderot's background is um, a theological one. He was, as I've said, educated by the Jesuits and studied theology at the Sorbonne. The church was uh, a career that he envisaged for himself originally, which might seem odd given everything that we now associate with, with Diderot. Um, at the age of 13, he was tonsured, so it was the first step in a, a clerical career. At the end of his theological studies at the Sorbonne, he was presented to the, uh, the Bishop of Long again, uh, with a view to becoming uh, a priest. Um, but things took a, a different path, and he decided to do different things. Mm. I mean, that, I suppose, sort of heads us to one of the first kind of intriguing questions about the life story, if you like, because to have that sort of theological basis to his life and then to end up a relatively short period in Paris as a kind of journalist as he became implies quite a, a dramatic tradition, I mean, transition there. I mean, yeah. I mean, how can we explain that? Was it a sort of a, a loss of faith or was there some other kind of um, motivation, do you think? I think partly there might have been his personal experiences of religion. Um, say he was, from a young age, he was being... Um, oh, my microphone's fallen off, sorry. From a young age, he was being um, set up as a potential priest. One of his paternal uncles was um, a canon in the local cathedral. Um, and I think at, a, at an early stage, he became... He was made aware of... Um, some of the injustices that characterised the church. There was a point where his maternal uncle was close to death and wanted his nephew to take his place at the cathedral and the other canons ganged up and said basically they didn't want the mere son of a, a coupler being part of, their, part of their community. So I think he had an unfortunate experience with religion personally. Um, there might also be some connections with what his, uh, his relationships with his brother and one of his sisters. One of his sisters became a nun and uh, went mad uh, in her convent, um, which of course anticipates some of what he explores in his fiction later in his career. Um, his brother, who was uh, younger than him, was a very devout um, Jesuit and uh, became a priest and there was no love lost between the brothers. So there might be some um, very kind of direct biographical experience. While he was studying in Paris, he was living in the, in the very district where all the fun was going on with the, the convulsionaries, you know, this, 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 um, this great spectacle of religious fervour um, at, around the, the Church of Saint-Médard, which, of course, he saw as a great spectacle of religious superstition and, and nonsense. So I think his contact, his early contact with the church, uh, wasn't an entirely positive one. And what did he start doing after he'd sort of abandoned the plan to enter the church? What, how did the career later progress? He starts off by uh, trying to become a lawyer, and he has a number of placements with uh, lawyers in Paris. Um, but, and we, we learned this from some of his correspondence at the time, he really just couldn't, he couldn't stick it, he wasn't interested in the law, he was more interested in actually going back to the books that he was studying when he'd been at, at college. Um, so he talks about reviving this interest in classical antiquity, in, in particular um, reading Horace again, reading Homer again. Um, so very quickly he leaves the law to one side 
um, and determines to become a writer. Um, so he spends quite a bit of his time um, doing kind of odd job writing uh, tasks for for others. So there's a uh, he wrote a, a thesis for somebody, a Sorbonne thesis for for somebody. So he's a kind of paid uh, a paid pen. He wrote um, sermons for. Uh, for priests who couldn't, who didn't have the same fluency that he did, um, he started translating as well. So he was making money through various ways, um, translating English texts. Uh, Stanion's history, for example, is one of the first texts that he translated. So he became a kind of jobbing writer, using the skills that he had um, to try and make his way in the world of, of letters. Thanks. In that sense, I suppose he's sort of inserting himself into a Parisian intellectual culture, um, which has subsequently become very kind of famous because of the number of other people who are also writing and thinking in Paris in this period. And I wonder if, Tim, you might like to talk a little bit about that wider circle that he's Mm -hmm. integrating himself with, known as the philosophes. Certainly. Well, philosophe itself, of course, just means philosopher in French, and that doesn't take us very far. So, I mean, I think if, I want, if you want a definition of the philosophe movement in a nutshell, then I would say that they're essentially anticipating that view which is famously associated with Karl Marx, that it's not enough to interpret or analyse the world, you have to get out there and change it. There is this relationship between the analysis through reason of a theoretical view of the world and then taking your conclusions out to that world and trying to persuade other groups in society uh, of it. So, I mean, I think that that's the fundamental relationship that the philosophers are trying to establish between their intellectual project and its social consequences. And in a sense, you see the seed, even at that point, of their uh, traumatic relationship to the world of power later on, because if you're going to take your views out into society, that means confronting the world of government as well. I mean, as far as the Parisian milieu is concerned, I think it's worth saying that a lot of these individuals are reacting to the end of the monolithic divine right absolutism associated with Louis XV, a reign that came to an end in 1715, and was succeeded by a period of relatively liberal censorship under the Regency, which allows a lot of views to be aired that have previously been kept under wraps. Now, there's not a unified program, I think, amongst the philosophes, but there is a broad shared critique, you know, which Diderot certainly did sign up to, I think. And that would include uh, aspects such as, obviously, the application of reason to human affairs, promotion of religious toleration, the reduction in the social political uh, power of churches, uh, and uh, advice to government that it should um, avoid arbitrary absolutism. I mean, it's not necessarily a stance against monarchy in in its own right, but against the arbitrary application of it. And there there are also other notions, such as the promotion of the idea of the abolition of torture, the reduction of the number of crimes which capital punishment might apply. Uh, And uh, I think beyond that, and this perhaps leads on to to the encyclopédie, there is a, a great interest in and promotion of the cultural and intellectual achievement of England in the previous 50 years. Locke, Newton, the political consequences, commercial economic consequences of the Glorious Revolution, and what that had actually meant uh, for uh, England. Now, it's not to say that Montesquieu, Voltaire, Diderot, Rousseau wanted to imitate in France exactly what 
had happened in England, but they felt that there were lessons to be learned there which needed to be introduced to the emerging public sphere in Paris. Uh, and here a key work, of course, is Voltaire's Letters on England, you know, published uh, in the 1730s, but then quickly suppressed uh, in France. Uh, and that, if you like, acts as a sort of John the Baptist to the uh, encyclopedies arrival uh, of the Messiah, if mm. you like. What was Diderot's the extent of his involvement with these people then, do you think? I mean, was he sort of a peripheral figure? Was he somebody that was quite central to a body of particularly leading philosophers? I mean, was he associating with any particular individuals who we're now familiar with? Well, as a man, Diderot was always highly gregarious. I mean, he makes contacts easily and sustains them uh, well. He's an entertaining conversationalist. Uh, he's not afraid of making uh, connections. Um, I, mean, I think I mean, the most immediate impact of the milieu on him uh, is uh, to sharpen the edge of his anti-clericalism, I think, and also to convert him to materialism, which was a very important aspect of his philosophy from early on. Um, and I think once you accept his viewpoint that the world is um, conditioned as much by flux and movement as it is by system uh, or by structures of belief, then a lot of the perhaps intangibility of, uh, and variety of Diderot's work later on comes into focus. And there's a lot of discussion going on uh, in the Paris of the 1730s and early 1740s about materialism and the relationship between uh, deism uh, and materialism. Uh, it's still an underdocumented area of Diderot's work, uh, I think, but in that you find the extra-philosophical edge to the kind of anti-clericalism mm. that Russell was talking about earlier. The picture you've painted as well is one of a kind of a, a very daring set of individuals who are, who are sort of framing a set of questions which are e explicitly opposing themselves to a lot of consensus and familiar thinking during that period, mm -hmm. both in a kind of religious and a... Uh, political sense. So how does, that, how does that impact upon what the philosophers are doing? How is, it, how, how is the state, if you like, reacting to this group of people yeah. who are programmatically questioning some of the fundamental ideas that have been sort of received opinion for mm. the previous several hundred years in some cases. Well, the context, of course, is not entirely harmonious and easy. I mean, censorship is still very much in the hands of the uh, church and the state, um, often erratically imposed, but still heavy penalties went with it. I mean, uh, Voltaire, Diderot, Rousseau are all experienced the consequences of that censorship, whether in the form of imprisonment for brief periods of time or exile, uh, or, shall we say, advisory exile, getting out of dodge in time to avoid the consequences. Um, one also should say, though, that, of course, the philosophers did, to an extent, bring some of this on themselves. I mean, they, their focus on humour, ridicule and satire meant that they were embracing the attacks of their enemies rather than studiously avoiding them. Um, there is a shared ethos of fun at the expense of authority, which runs through these authors. I'm not saying that they invited the consequences, but um, they were quite prepared to do combat on even terms with their opponents. That makes it sound as though writing is itself a form of activity, actually, and that, you know, rather than simply writing documents which then they expect, the ideas from those then disseminating in the world and becoming <coughs> political activities, the act of writing, the act of publishing, 
is itself an act of protest in some respect. I think that's right. I mean, it's how it explains to an extent how well-suited Diderot was to this environment. I mean, someone who was a materialist, someone who believed in debate uh, and dialogue and the existence of plural uh, views at, at the same time is actually temperamentally very well-suited to thrive, I think, uh, in this uh, particular mm-hmm. environment, better than some of the more uh, dogmatic uh, thinkers uh, uh, with whom he was associated Let's talk perhaps about his uh, most famous book, if you like, the, the Encyclopédie, which is, has a very wide currency and is perhaps the thing that he's, he's most famous for today. Um, perhaps you can fill us in on what this document was mm. and why it came into being and what it was trying to do. Well, the first thing to say about the Encyclopédie is that, of course, it morphs, rather like the rest of Diderot's work, from what it originally started off as being to what it finally became. I mean, it started off uh, in the 1740s as a commission project by the publisher Le Breton uh, to translate the very successful English Chambers Cyclopedia, two-volume cyclopedia that had come out in the 1720s. The publisher saw a market opportunity, and he commissioned uh, Diderot, who, as you uh, were saying earlier, uh, you know, had, had experience in translating English works already, and the mathematician and scientist d'Alembert to do an exercise in revision. But by the time the final volume rolled off the press in 1772, it had become a 28-folio volume um, enterprise and containing 72,000 articles, 2,500 engraved plates, and involving 160 commissioned authors, commissioned largely by Diderot himself, because his co-editor d'Alembert bailed out in 1758. So it became this much more ambitious enterprise whose kernel, I think, is to be found in the detailed title uh, of, the, um, of the book, uh, which is Encyclopedia or Reasoned Dictionary of Arts, Sciences and Trades. In other words, it's providing uh, not just a dictionary reference work, but an intentionally comprehensive survey uh, of uh, the arts, sciences, and crucially artisanal trades uh, of uh, mid-18th century France. In that sense, do you think it's a, it's a, it's a way of realising that enlightenment goal of universal knowledge? This is a document that can summarise the sum total of human learning and then disseminate it to a public. There is that, although there's more to it. Uh, If you read the prospectus that Diderot published before the the project really got going, one of the key themes which runs right the way through the finished product is already there, and that is that it is to enable the reader to make his or her own intellectual journey using the cross-references provided by the editors through the book. In other words, it's not a dogmatic text saying you've got to read these articles in this order. It's an opportunity to... Uh, educate the readers in the latest technological developments, um, which of course are illustrated in the volumes of plates, but also to provide uh, introductions to key philosophical debates, key theological debates, uh, and uh, the state of cultural play, uh, if you like, uh, in the France of the 1750s. And how is it received? Well... It gets into trouble twice in the 1750s in a way that nearly puts it out of business for good. I mean, the the sales do well. I mean, there are are 25,000 subscribers in all, including many internationally. So the publisher is pleased, uh, I think, with the the outcome. Uh, And if you look at the subsequent publication history, its republication and um, its imitation, then you can see that uh, it, it has an international resonance, both the project and the content. 
However, it, as I say, it becomes something of um, uh, a controversy in its own right because it inevitably gets involved and bound up with other literary, political, religious quarrels that are going on in the Paris of the 1750s. In 1752, one of the contributors, the Abbé de Prade, gets into trouble, not so much for what he's written in the uh, Encyclopédie, but because it turns out that he's written heretical things in the thesis that he presented uh, to the Sorbonne, and even more embarrassingly, the doctoral examiners in the Sorbonne had passed it without reading it. Salutary, <laughs> salutary lesson there for us all, I think. Um, so it was, but uh, so the encyclopedia was nearly found guilty by association. Much more um, seriously, in, in 1758, there was a sort of perfect storm of opposition, which tells you quite a lot, I think, about the life of literary Paris in that period. It's a bad time for France in the Seven Years' War. There's been an assassination attempt on the king, the so-called Damien uh, conspiracy. Um, and Helvetius, one of the contributors to the Encyclopédie, publishes uh, a controversial work, De l'Esprit, which uh, gets condemned. And the religious party at court sees this opportunity to try and get the Encyclopédie closed down. But here, the whole project is rescued, really, by uh, Diderot's own networks, going back to his gregariousness, from which I mentioned earlier. Uh, and in this case, the key connection is with the director of the censorship, the controller of publishing in Paris, uh, who is a friend of Diderot, and they come to an agreement that basically all of the working papers of the Encyclopédie will be transferred to his house for a duration uh, while uh, an inspection is carried out on Diderot's uh, premises. So basically, by befriending the chief censor in Paris, he saves the enterprise, and then it's concluded, at least the textual volumes are concluded, uh, in 1765. Is that how he was able to get away, if you like, with putting some unorthodox opinions into the manuscript overall? Or were there other problems where people identified problematic passages and mm. raised objections? Well, there's no party line in the Encyclopédie, so the contributors were not told they had to produce a particularly radical view or a particularly orthodox view. And indeed, you will find articles on the same subject, one of which puts forward an, an orthodox view and another one that puts forward a radical view. Often the most controversial opinions, though, are buried deep in highly technical essays where the censor would have to have read it very carefully and very hard to have spotted the most troublesome passages. There's also a suppressed humour uh, for those in the know in the cross-referencing system which is elaborately devised, building on the original in the Chamber Cyclopaedia, which also had a, had a good cross-referencing system, whereby um, not only are articles linked in a particularly leading, even sometimes tendentious way, uh, but there is a satirical edge to the cross-referencing itself. The famous linkage of the Eucharist with the article on cannibalism, for example, being the <laughs> most uh, notorious example uh, of that. And, of course, that's not particularly subtle, so it's surprising in a sense that that was allowed to get past mm. censors who presumably, perhaps they weren't reading their, their, their work either, I don't know. I think there's one final question that I really want to ask about this, which is something that's always intrigued me a little bit, which is, who was actually reading this, this book? Because, obviously, it's a massive work. It was published in, in part works over a very long period of time. It would have been quite expensive to acquire it. Mm. So... What kinds of people were actually consuming this material? Um, 
which is also a question, of course, about the dissemination of the ideas within it, but simply in immaterial terms, who was actually reading mm. it. Well, again, if you read the prospectus and if you read the article that Diderot wrote entitled Encyclopédie, which, which is, is in the volume itself, you get a clear sense that they, the, uh, the editors and the contributors intend it to be a socially inclusive um, cultural artefact. Uh, and they do go out of their way to try to ensure that academies, libraries... Um, institutions in the provinces buy a copy where it can be consulted by more than one user. Uh, I mean, it isn't the question that all of these copies go off to some aristocratic subscriber who never even cuts the pages and they just sit there unread. You know, they, they, um, the, the publisher doesn't want that, and, and on intellectual and social grounds, uh, the contributors don't want that uh, either. Uh, and there is then the whole question of uh, overseas uh, readers as well. I mean, they encourage overseas subscribers so that it's available in Italy and in, in, in Germany uh, and in England uh, to be consulted. Uh, and also, uh, they don't place too many obstacles, at least the publisher doesn't place too many obstacles uh, in, in, the, in the way of pirated editions uh, and attempts to produce similar encyclopedias as we move into the later 18th century. Thanks very much. I mean, th that locates Diderot quite, I think, thoroughly in some of the intellectual contexts that he was operating in. Um, but one of the other intriguing episodes about him, I think, is his involvement with politics. And, and that's something, Paul, that you've been looking into, particularly with his relationship with Catherine the Great of Russia. So perhaps you'd like to say a few words, first of all, about how he became involved with this monarch and what the nature of that involvement was initially. Yes, initially, um, Diderot is... is put in contact with Catherine um, in 1762. And the contact initially comes through Ivan Shivalov, uh, former favourite of the preceding empress, um, Elizabeth, uh, who is now based in Paris. In late 62, after Catherine's taken power, um, the episode that Tim refers to uh, on the encyclopedia's legal difficulties uh, leads to the suspension of its licence to publish for a while. Catherine then takes the initiative and suggests perhaps that uh, Diderot would like to relocate publishing to Riga in the Russian Empire, where she will not only publish uh, the remainder of the Encyclopedia Forum, but will also, of course, pay for it. Now, that it, it establishes a, a degree of contact between the two. But Catherine is also then part of a, I suppose, a, is, is contacting Diderot as part of a, a wider uh, engagement with uh, leading philosophers. Uh, one of her first uh, international acts, I suppose, as Empress is to subscribe uh, to Friedrich Melchior Grimm's correspondence Meet of Her in, in late 1762. And it's not long after that she strikes up a, a long-lasting uh, and very mutually flattering uh, correspondence with Voltaire. So it's on that basis, then, that Catherine is in contact with not only Diderot, but, of course, other members of his immediate circle. Um, and the, the relationship then builds from there. And then she, she commissions him, doesn't she? I mean, first of all, there's the offer to, to buy the library, which is perhaps you could like to say a little bit more about. But also there's this whole sort of commission about how she sort of entrusted Diderot to become an art collector on her behalf, this sort of overseas agent who's presumably kind of operating as some kind of dealer for her. So I wonder if you'd like to say a little bit more about that Yes, episode. I mean, the... The, the library incident is, is an interesting one. In 1765, Diderot, who is never a wealthy man, having come from quite humble backgrounds, as Russell has said, uh, is in some financial dire straits. 
uh, and let it be known that he's willing to sell his quite considerable library. Now, it should be remembered, by the way, that this is not just a, a personal library uh, in, insofar as these are books that he himself has purchased, but also the backbone of the extensive research that Diderot has done in putting together the volumes of the Encyclopédie. So as grand collections go of mid-18th century political, economic, uh, philosophical works go, this is, this is really quite a, a significant one. Catherine uh, is made aware of this uh, potential sale by Grimm, and offers to buy it from him for around 15,000 livres, which is a very large uh, amount of money uh, at the time. Uh, but she has two conditions, both of which are beneficial to Diderot. She offers, first of all, to leave the library in his uh, possession until his death, and second of all, to pay him a retainer of 1,000 livres per year uh, for as long as that will be, basically to act as her librarian for it until such times as it uh, comes into her possession. Equally generous, however, is the fact that this lapses after a year. She, he doesn't get paid. And he lets this be known um, through Grimm and others, um, principally uh, Gillitson, who's the uh, Minister Plenipotentiary uh, in Paris. So they both tell Catherine this, this has not been paid on time. She then says, well, OK, uh, to prevent this from happening in the future, what I'll do is I'll pay you 50 years in advance in a lump sum. <laughs> so she gives him 50,000 livres, to which he responds... That means that, although I'm in my late 50s, you expect me to live for another 50 years, which is very <laughs> flattering in itself. But on the, the issue, then, uh, of his other activities for uh, Catherine in Paris, uh, in Diderot is, is, is a man who's very much plugged in, both to the, the kind of philosophical, political uh, world of the Philosophy and Encyclopedia Project, also, of course, his great passion for art. Um, and he writes, uh, you know, one of the first works of, of art criticism in the Salon, uh, from the, the late 1750s onwards. So he's a man who has an eye for art, and uh, alongside uh, other trusted individuals like Ivan Shivalov, the previously mentioned favourite of Elizabeth, um, Catherine calls upon this. And, and probably the most, favorite, uh, uh, most famous of these uh, commissions uh, results in the hiring of Jean-Étienne Falconet, uh, who will later go on to uh, provide the sculpture as the basis for the Bronze Horseman, uh, the very famous statue of Peter the Great, which... Catherine Commissions, which is then uh, ultimately revealed to the public in the early 1780s and is one of the great uh, monumental statues of, of the 18th century. Falconet is a, a, a friend, uh, although not a terribly good friend, of, of Diderot's, as it subsequently turns out, um, and it is only on Diderot's suggestion that he eventually goes along with uh, a young uh, female apprentice of his, Collot, Amory Collot, um, to St. Petersburg to undertake this uh, commission uh, in the late 1760s. So that's probably the most famous. Another quite significant one which often gets overlooked is his role as an art purchaser. Um, in um, the early 1770s, uh, the very famous Crozat collection of art, which basically has been put together by two self-made men, Pierre and Antoine Crozat, uh, from the latter stages of the 17th century, the early part of the 18th century, um, which consists of drawings and paintings uh, from the old masters through to the contemporary Rococo style. Um, they have, in fact, in the past, acted as a, an art purchaser for the Duke of Orléans, uh, the regent that, that Tim mentioned uh, a few moments ago. This comes on the market because Antoine Crozat, their nephew, who is the last surviving inheritor of this, uh, has died in 1770. So through the grapevine, Diderot becomes aware that this collection has come on sale. He gets it valued by a guy, Francois Tronchin, at the, the low, low price uh, of 460,000 livres. And this is for works of art all the way from Leroy da Vinci all the way up to Watteau. 
Catherine says, I'll take it. And the entire <laughs> thing goes on to form part of the Hermitage then, which is set up in, in the 1770s. Now, that's not to say he's the only person who's doing this kind of purchasing for her, nor does she pay attention to every last thing he has to say to her on the issue of art. Um, uh, but nevertheless, I, I think it's quite significant. She trusts him to, to make these kind of purchases for, uh, for him, which he has to pay for up front and then has to be reimbursed. So we're, we're back to this problem of, could I have my money, please, in the correspondence, which he then subsequently provides uh, through the ambassadors in, in France itself. And, of course, on the subject of that slightly problematic relationship, because their connection does then deepen, in that up to this point he's, he's acting as a sort of cultural guru by remote control. And then there's this invitation for him to actually join Catherine in Russia, um, which is a very intriguing episode, partly because it's always seemed to me that the, the purpose of that visit is slightly unclear. So I wonder if you could perhaps tell us a little bit about why Diderot goes to Russia in the first place and what he sees as his mission in doing so and whether that was realised by the subsequent events that unfolded. Yeah, I mean, it's a very good question on aims. What do both sides want from meeting each other? Now, we have some precedents. I mean, we could talk, if there's time, of course, about Voltaire's relationship with Frederick II. Uh, more recently, in, in, in the mid-1760s, Madame Joffrin, who's a famous salonier in Paris, has made the trip to visit Stanislaw Poniatowski, King of Poland. And that's got a lot of international press. But this is even bigger still. This is Diderot, one of the encyclopedists, who's travelling a considerable distance uh, to go and visit the court of St. Petersburg and, of course, uh, Catherine II's great patron. We have some initial indications that their, their relationship is already unusual. One of the things that Diderot does when he's still in Paris in the late 1760s is to try and help suppress an unfavourable account of Catherine's rise to power, written by, and let's see if I've got this name right, Claude Carlemont de Rulière, which is Anecdotes on the Revolution in Russia in the year 1762. Now, what happens with Rulière is that, of course, he's basically making allegations that Catherine has effectively had her husband killed in order to seize power. Rulière has not published this work, but Catherine wants to make sure that it never will be published. And so Diderot goes to him and says, could you destroy the manuscript? Rulière says, absolutely no way. Diderot then says, allegedly, well, I, I'm very good friends with the chief censor. Perhaps I could have it seized. And then you wouldn't have any work at all. Rulière then responds apparently by saying, I've committed to memory, and I can quote it line on verse. So that's not going to work. All he can effectively do is persuade Rulière not to publish it as long as Catherine is alive. And that, that subsequently comes to pass. So he's already doing her favours, which seem to get in the way of this idea of him being you know, a proponent of free speech, a proponent of free ideas, and so on and so forth. He eventually, I think, largely on the grounds of gratitude about her financial generosity and perhaps a, a lingering intellectual curiosity about Catherine herself and what Russia is, decides to undertake a, a trip to Russia in the early 1770s. It takes him a long time to get around to doing it, but really, uh, with the, the final um, plates volumes of the Encyclopédie in press, uh, with his daughter now successfully married, he decides to undertake the uh, trip. It takes him about six months of preparations to go. And it is worth saying at this stage, Diderot is quite old. He's 60 when he eventually leaves in the middle of 1773. And that's not an easy journey. I know because I've done it, travelling all the way to St. Petersburg, and I'm a young man. So God knows what it's like in the middle of the 18th century for a man who's not in the best of health to begin with. He stays for a while in The Hague. And I, I wanted to highlight this because there's a lot of questions about what he knows about Russia before he goes. He's read 
a lot of extant work, uh, the works of Montesquieu, for example, uh, the famous Abbé Chapdotroch's uh, Voyage to Siberia, which is published in the early 1760s, and of which Catherine's not a big fan. But there is another source available too. He meets a number of Russians before he actually gets there, two of them in particular who he gets on very well with. Uh, the first is uh, Dmitry uh, Galitsyn, the former minister plenipotentiary in Paris, who's now in The Hague, gets on very well with him. And another who's there almost by accident, a young man by the name of uh, uh, Alexei Vasilich Narishkin, who's uh, a member of Catherine's court who has been taking the waters in Isla Chapelle, modern-day Aachen. And it's really only, I think, because Narishkin agrees to go with him from The Hague to St. Petersburg that the next step of the, the journey continues. And on their, their long journey, takes them another four months to get there, um, Narishkin provides him with a certain amount of information about what Russia is like. And it, it's often been overlooked, so I, I wanted to dwell on this very briefly. Narishkin's not only a courtier. He's travelled extensively in the courts of southern Europe, particularly Savoy. Also, interestingly, he has served as a member of <coughs> Catherine's Grand Experiment in Legal Reform, the Legislative Commission of 1767-68. He served as one of the noble deputies at that, an event which causes uh, a considerable amount of discussion across Europe, uh, and which Diderot in particular will pay attention to when he then subsequently writes his observations on Catherine's instruction to that commission. So Narishkin's not just anybody, which is sometimes the way he's being portrayed by uh, historians who write on this. And they're locked in this conversation. Uh, Diderot continues to read, he continues to write during the journey, and he eventually arrives... Uh, I think quite fortuitously, in early October 1773, the day before the marriage uh, of Catherine's heir, Grand Duke Paul. And from that point onwards, he will spend uh, a few months, uh, up until early December, uh, in almost daily conversation with Catherine on a variety of subjects. Uh, and thereafter, um, looking around the capital, not in terribly good health, um, but also meeting some of the other members of her immediate circle, uh, principally uh, Ivan Bitskoy, an educational reformer, uh, Alexander uh, Mikhailich uh, Galitsyn, Dmitry's cousin, um, and a number of the other people associated with uh, the Smolny Institute and with the Cadet Corps. So that's how he ends up there. Not a great time to visit, really, given his health, because it's very cold, uh, and St. Petersburg itself is not a terribly well-built city, even by this stage. Trust a man who's just written a book on the subject, it's not a nice place to visit in this period as I'll come back to. All of that makes it sound as though he was some kind of consultant who's being sort of summoned across Europe in order to advise on various procedures that Catherine was thinking of um, implementing, I suppose. Um, I mean, would that be a fair way of putting it? Or is there something slightly more complicated going on? I mean, he's making advice about various things you're suggesting, but well, is, he actually, is he being listened to? I mean, Well, he is. Uh, he, he's very lively. Uh, in, in conversation. Um, essentially, I mean, to set this up, he goes to visit her uh, at 3 p.m. every day. They sit together for a, a number of hours. And as preparation for this, what he's done is he's, he's developed uh, a series of memoranda on various subjects. Could be uh, political institutions, the uh, authority of the sovereign, uh, the condition of artisans and craftsmen, something that he's written about in the Encyclopédie, of course, uh, why serfdom exists, uh, the way in which uh, Russia can be improved. So he writes all this out, he submits it to the Empress, the Empress reads it and they then discuss it. He goes away and then he revises it again. The conversation takes place very much like this, in fact, uh, in uh, the Imperial drawing room. Uh, it's, it's joked about on, on a number of occasions by several contemporaries. Grimm, for example, 
uh, Catherine herself jokes about it, the fact that he doesn't really sit still. He gets up and he moves around. So it's not as if they're sitting facing one another. He sits down beside her. He jabs her on the leg. At one point she jokes to Madame Joffrin in a letter that she's had to actually put a table between them to make sure she doesn't end up black and blue from him jabbing her on the knee. But it's a question of what does, what does she actually take on board from these things? Mm. And that's much harder to ascertain. And I think one way to, to think about their relationship is in terms of intellectual engagement. Catherine at the time is still relatively young. She's in her late 30s. Um, and she is surrounded by people whose ideas she finds interesting, as well as people who can get things done for her. I think without going to um, you know, too much um, slightly uh, intimate detail about it, it is significant that in October and November 1773, she is between companions. Alexander Vasilchikov, who's not a clever man, um, has previously been her intimate companion, and he has been effectively dismissed. In January 74, she then takes off with the, the great love of her life, Grigory Pachomkin, who up until that point is serving on the Ottoman front uh, in southern Russia. So he kind of comes along in this interim period, and she does find him genuinely interesting. Her, he finds her very impressive, that she speaks on a variety of topics with a great deal of erudition, with a great deal of uh, information at her fingertips. The, uh, the fact that he's able to answer her questions, quite detailed questions about trade, uh, about finance, uh, about the condition of the serfs, with uh, ready access to the information um, that she doesn't have to refer to other advisors, he finds genuinely quite impressive. But from December onwards, the memoranda stop. 5th of December, I think, is the last one. And from that point onwards, he sees her once every three or four days. And it's clear that she has other priorities on her mind. So I think that phase of their relationship then changes things. And after three months, he then goes back. He, he leaves in, in uh, March 1774. So there is a question about how much meaningful, practical uh, uh, result there can be of this discussion. But of course, what results from it are the memoranda that we have, which are only recently published. Uh, 1966 is the, the best edition of them by Vernier. Um, and thereafter, of course, we have uh, a series of what are called observations, uh, on the Nakaz, this instruction which he has drafted in the mid-1760s for the Legislative Commission, which he then subsequently begins to write about in a lot of detail on his return journey, beginning in March 74 and then uh, uh, throughout the, the remainder of his life. He continues to keep looking at what the Nakaz says, what Russia uh, could be in his mind, uh, and things that uh, uh, Catherine might do in order to reform it. Well, thanks very much. I mean, there are, there are a number of very intriguing kind of subplots to that that whole discussion. And I'm struck particularly by the idea that if, if Tim was saying that the philosophers are trying to execute a, a programme of implementing political change, of course there's the wider question there of what a philosopher actually does when he has the opportunity to do that. Mm. And that's something that perhaps we can return to because there are a couple of other things that I think we should discuss before we open up to, to questions. Um, one thing I particularly wanted to ask you, Russell, given that you've translated <coughs> Diderot's work, um, and particularly The Nun, um, is about his, his capacity as a writer of fiction. Mm. We've talked quite a lot so far about um, his role as a, a, a cultural leader, a collaborator, as an editor, and then about these abortive attempts, if you like, to be a politician or at least some kind of special advisor. Um, but perhaps you'd like to say a little bit about The Nun as a piece of work and what it's about and why he wrote it, perhaps, and w what it's doing as a, a, as a novel. Sure. I think one of the... 
complex things when approaching Peter Hall is just realising uh, the, the sheer range of activities that he got involved in and how we see the fiction fitting into all these other things that we've already been talking about is, is I think, important. Um, uh, yes, The Nun, which he started writing in 1760, um, it wasn't the first time he'd uh, written uh, prose fiction. Um, he first dabbled in it back in the 1740s when he was doing all this philosophical writing. Um, in 1748, he wrote a novel in the sort of Orientalist mode uh, called Indiscreet Jewels. Um, and the jewels in question are uh, women's genitalia. And um, the African monarch has a magic ring, uh, and when he passes his magic ring over women's genitalia, they speak, and they're indiscreet. Um, this isn't a text that's very popular with feminist critics. Um, so it's a, a satire of a satire of women, certainly. But these, where you know, these the, these indiscreet jewels talk about all the various men who've been um, uh, visiting lately. So, um, and, and they talk about various other topics. So he dabbled with fiction, but then seems to leave it aside because he's working on the encyclopedia and so on. But he comes back to writing fiction in 1760, partly under the influence of English fiction. We, uh, Tim was talking earlier about his interest in English thought. He's a great fan of English writing, fictional, excuse me, fictional writing. Uh, Samuel Richardson is his big hero. Um, whom he reads probably in the French translation. Um, uh, and so, so partly he's, he's, um, he's gripped by this model that he sees in, in Pamela, most obviously, this model of fiction that seems to be about real life or that provides an experience, a reading experience, that is so believable, so, so real feeling that it has this enormous emotional and, and moral impact. And he sets out to write something in that vein. Um, so that's one thing that feeds into the nun. The other thing um, might be the biographical experience that I evoked earlier about his, his sister, who became a nun. Um, the third element in the background to this story, though, is um, a practical joke. Diderot and some of his friends in Paris were missing their friend, the Marquis de Croixmare, who'd uh, moved to his provincial retreat a year or so before. And they wanted to get him to come back to Paris. It's, this, it's the gregarious Diderot again. Um, and they knew that um, a year or so before, the Marquis de Croixmare had become interested in the fate of a nun who was trying to um, rescind her, her vows. So, they, so Diderot came up with the idea of pretending to be a nun and wrote a series of letters purporting to be a, from a nun who wanted to escape this convent that she'd been forced into as a way of getting the Marquis de Croixmare to come Paris and, and save her. It didn't quite work, unfortunately, because the Marquis de Croixmare replied very nicely, saying, well, um, why don't you escape and, and come and see me and I'll help you out. It still didn't get him back to Paris. But Diderot thought, um, nevertheless, that there was a good story here. So he turned, he worked on those letters that, that he'd written in 1760. He came back to them in the, uh, later in his life um, and turned them into the story that we now the, the nun, La Religieuse, and it is the story written from the perspective of a young woman, Suzanne Simonin, who has been forced to enter a convent against her will. Um, she's the, uh, it's clear that her, her parents force her into this nun after her mother has a, a, an extramarital affair. Um, uh, so it partly reflects historical reality, 
that convents, which were extremely numerous in 18th century France, convents were a very handy way of dealing with problematic uh, daughters, daughters who had been born out of wedlock um, in particular. Um, so and it, it takes the form of um, a, uh, a text addressed to, still addressed to this, this, this marquis, um, pleading with him to, to save her. And she gives, Suzanne, the narrator, gives this first-person account of three different convents that she lives in. And we have a spectacle of, on the one hand, extreme religious intolerance and cruelty. We see some of the bizarre and painfully cruel um, rituals that Suzanne is forced to go through uh, by the other, some of the other nuns. Um, in the third convent that she finds herself in, the nuns, or in particular the Mother Superior, um, isn't so much cruel, uh, but is obsessed with her in a different way, and there's a, a very subtle, playful evocation of a, of, of, of a lesbian relationship between the narrator and the, and the Mother Superior. Um, so it's a text that, through, this, through Didot's uh, ventriloquism act, creates this persona of a girl forced to do something against her will. In part, it's a satire of the Roman Catholic Church, it's a satire of the convent system. The philosophes in general were very fond of satirising convents and monasteries because, precisely because the philosophes were trying to make the world a better place, why do you lock people away who don't make the world a better place? Why do you lock people away and stop them from procreating? So there's a whole tradition of criticism of, of convents and monasteries. So, so Diderot is, is tapping into, into that. Um, but more broadly, it is this powerful plea for, for freedom, freedom of choice, freedom of decision. Um, so the, the story of a girl who's forced to take vows against her will becomes an emblematic story of um, any kind of dogma, any kind of system that tries to control the decisions that an individual makes. That's interesting, because the first thing I was thinking of when listening to that summary is that it seems ostensibly to be a sort of anti-religious satire framed by a man who presumably has become disillusioned with mm. organised religion. Yeah. And yet from some of the formal things that you were talking about, especially this whole um, respect in which it was based upon a real-life event, that fits it within the 18th century novelistic tradition of the fraudulent true confessions mode. Yeah. I mean, I think if we, if we think in terms of the English tradition, I mean, Robinson Crusoe, which of course it purports to be a discovered manuscript, yeah. Gulliver's Travels of course does the same, although in an obviously more fake way. Um, and in a sense, it's, do you think it's, a, it's indicative of a kind of a new form of, of, of writing in the 18th century? a way of understanding or presenting arguments in a new format that subsequently we see as the emergence of the novel. I think, I think you're right in that Diderot is clearly um, uh, participating in that trend that, d that develops in France, at least from the late 17th century onwards, of passing off fiction as being real, discovered manuscripts, diaries, and, and so on. Um, and he's, he's certainly doing that. Manon Lescaut, Prévost's novel, is a, is a famous example of that, the supposedly mm. true story. Um, but I think Diderot, it seems to me, in two particular ways, Diderot takes it further. In, in part, it becomes um, part of a reflection, a very self-conscious reflection on the art of fiction writing. So he isn't just following a tradition. He's picking up on the tradition, but also 
investigating that tradition, playing around with it, turning it around. Um, so there is, um, for as believable as this narrative is, um, there is nevertheless a very self-conscious side to it, and a side which actually destroys the believability. It's a, it's a, it's a um, perverse text in a way because it ends with a preface. So Didot is highlighting the, the fictional convention that prefaces are supposedly written first because they're what you read first. Everybody knows that prefaces are written last and then put before the novel. So Didot takes that literally, puts the preface at the end of the text, and the preface explodes the fiction. The preface explodes the fact that this is all make-believe, that this is all based on, 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 on fabrication. So I think he's, he's playing with truth and fiction as a way of casting light on the art of fiction itself. But I think there's also an important philosophical exploration there as well. He's, he's playing off um, reality and fiction um, precisely as a way of making us see how fictional reality is. That reality isn't something, or truth isn't something, that we somehow have some straightforward uh, kind of uh, transparent access into. That truth, whatever that is, is just as mediated, just as told, just as narrated as any kind of fiction. So he's showing up the fictional nature of fiction, and he's showing up this mediated fictional storytelling nature of, of truth and reality as well. So, it, so the fiction is part of his philosophical enterprise. I suppose in that sense it's almost misleading to describe it as being... Because I've, I've, I've seen the novel described as being an experimental one, and yet from, from what you're saying it's almost as if the, the format has not yet reached a stable conception. And so to see it as being experimental is to assume a lot of later conventions that we now associate with novel writing that mm. are in flux in this period that, and that Diderot and others are experimenting with. I think that's right. I think there are different kinds of um, fictional tradition that are in place, that the form of the novel itself is mutating in the course of the 18th century. I think we can talk about Diderot's fiction as being experimental insofar as it... As it um, I suppose, in some senses at least, prefigures what we associate with, with modernist fiction, precisely this kind of self-consciousness, the self-reflexive nature. You know, I think just about all of Diderot's fictions are about fiction. He, he writes fictions which are about the telling of stories, which foreground that in more, and less, more or less explicit ways. Um, I can mention some of the other fictions, if that well, would I'm help. Sure, yeah, that, that. Um, but there's the other famous example is... is um, Jacques Le Fataliste, which he writes at the, starts writing in the early 1770s, which is very explicitly a story about storytelling. Um, you have um, two characters speaking to each other, but you also have the character of a narrator, and you also have the character of the reader. So it's the kind of thing that, to an extent, we might be familiar with from the writings of Stern, for instance. Peter was a great fan of, of Stern as well as of, of Richardson. But that kind of, that kind of self-consciousness... Um, stories about stories is an important part of what he's doing in this One thing I particularly wanted to ask you too, given that you've translated this mm. piece, is, is what Diderot's like as a stylist. Um, mm. And I mean, his use of language, is there something particularly distinctive about that? What was it like to, to translate the nun and to work so closely with the text and to think about sort of rephrasing it, in a sense, mm. in another language? Um, I, 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 I do think that translation is... Um, uh, is, 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 is probably one of the most refined forms of literary criticism because you can't get away with anything you can't skip over any bits that you're not interested in or don't fit in with what you're 
wanting to argue that you do have to pore over every line. I also think it's a fantastic way of getting to know Diderot, um, and I think um, it's the only text by Diderot I've, I've translated, but my sense of Diderot's writing would be that translating each Diderot text would be a very different experience, precisely because of that ventriloquism that I think I mentioned earlier on. Um, so what's interesting about translating the Nam is that you have, for the bulk of the narrative, this very believable, um, naive, supposedly naive young woman speaking about elements of um, specifically female experience. Um, and there is, and, and the experience of translating it um, just made me more aware than ever of just what a great impersonator he is that he fits himself, and we see him doing it in, in lots of his texts, that he'll, he'll present completely different views, or the views that we might think that he holds, he presents something completely opposite. He thinks paradoxically, he thinks in this sort of contrary way. Um, and translating the novel um, just, just really brought that home to me, that sense that he can, that he can live in somebody else's skin. Um, there are... At a, at a kind of micro level, there were very striking stylistic features that struck me in terms of how she presented herself as a, as a, as a victim. So there was the, um, uh, the terribly difficult use in French of on, which means one, and how do you try to, you know, you know, one did this, one did that. It's not a terribly interesting to do, but Didot, or Suzanne, his narrator, does this an awful lot because it creates this impression of this kind of unnamed great force that's working against her. Um, so, so there were stylistic devices that fitted into the kind of emotional effect that he was trying to have uh, through his story. Thanks very much. I'm very keen to leave sufficient time for, for people to ask questions, but I wonder if we might end just by um, reflecting a little bit on why Diderot remains an important figure. I mean, he's, he's the sort of face of this festival in some respects, and it draws its inspiration from him. So I think it might be useful if we could just perhaps explain why we think you know Diderot is important I mean why why should he be a why should why should we be paying attention to to him in particular Um, I I I think there are um, probably two reasons why and they might seem to be contradictory but I think he holds them in in tension on the one hand we have um, uh, Diderot's materialism that Tim evoked earlier on, um, a well-thought-through, determinedly-argued materialism, um, and hand-in-hand hand with that goes Diderot's constant search for um, uh, an ethical code, a code of morality, and we find that running through all his, his works as well. He's obsessively interested in questions of good and evil, and in a world from which religious authority and God has been removed, what are our standards, what are the moral standards by which we're going to operate? And I think that kind of moral questioning, based on a clear philosophical stance, but that, that, that moral questioning, that ethical questioning, makes him fascinating still today. Um, the second reason why I think he's still really important today, in a sense, is it sort of goes against that. I'm saying there that he has a very clear philosophical stance, materialism, um, my second reason is that um, in his texts he, he doesn't just propagate one particular philosophical stance. His texts are dialogic, they're polyphonic, um, they're texts which play with lots of different ideas which force the reader 
to play with lots of different ideas as well that unsettle the reader, that make us realise that holding to one particular truth, one particular dogma, um, is misplaced and potentially very dangerous. So I think that second reason, that, that reading Diderot takes us on an intellectual adventure that forces us to rethink our received ideas, to rethink what we've always held to be true, um, I think that also makes him um, a really lively and really important person to be reading today. Thanks, Timmy. You were nodding along there with, uh, in agreement with the Well, yes, I, I, I would agree with, with all of that. Um, I mean, I was quite a late... Uh, convert to Diderot. I mean, when I first got interested in the political thought of the uh, Enlightenment and its thought more generally, I was interested in the systemic thinkers, I mean, the thinkers whose whose minds worked in such a way as to set up an elaborate, ingenious, beautifully oiled mechanism, which, when when you understood it, explained the world as they saw it, you know, to the frontiers of time. You know, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations or Hume's Essays would come under that category. But as I've read more broadly in the International Enlightenment, it seems to me that Diderot is more reflective of the infinite variety of Enlightenment thought and the different responses to the challenges of the time, whether political, social, uh, moral, or scientific. Uh, and that stems partly because of his you know, wonderful curiosity and you know, omnivorous reading and awareness of what is going on in the world around him. But it also goes deeper than that, as Russell was saying, to his whole intellectual approach, which is to make a virtue of plural possibilities at one and the same time. Uh, and that means that you get this wonderful entertainment of not knowing whether you're actually reading a work of fiction or a philosophical tract uh, or uh, a memoir. I mean, he plays with, uh, with you as the reader, just as he is entertaining all of these um, uh, simultaneous possibilities. And sometimes that quality of writing attains, a, 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 I suppose, a sort of visionary quality that stands outside time and place, particularly at those points where his own thought appears to be transitioning from one set of characteristics to another or to be taking on board in front of you and with you what he's actually noticing that's new in the world around him. And here I'd just like to flag up to make that a little bit more concrete, uh, his art criticism, which seems to me sustainedly wonderful in all of its forms, because he takes you round the galleries in a sort of cinematic uh, way, uh, not just describing the paintings, not just describing his reactions, but also taking you into deep inner meditations on the significance of the paintings, the moral lessons that can be learned from them, and what they tell you at that moment uh, about the, the tensions and problems of 18th century life. Uh, there's one uh, example that I have particularly in mind, which is his reworking of the myth of Plato's cave, in which he imagines uh, that uh, he uh, and a lot of other people uh, are in a gloomy cavern, uh, and there's a large light behind them, like that light there, and it is in many ways a sort of anticipation of the cinema, and that elaborate figures of authority are holding up little cartoon figures in front of the light in order to project larger versions of themselves and therefore impose a vision of authority on the world around them that entirely rests on smoke uh, and mirrors. Now, of course, you know, we, we haven't discussed... You know, why Diderot felt necessary to deal with that world of illusion and projection uh, to the end uh, of his life. But it does give you a visionary sense of how he transcended it and seen beyond it into uh, decades beyond those in which he was actually living. 
Oh, anything, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, two, two things which occur to me, which I, I think chime very much with what Tim and, and Russell have said already. The, the, the enduring interest in, in Diderot from the Russian point of view is really between how the outside world sees Russia, what Russia can be in the mind of some, confronted with the reality of the political or economic or social situation in the 1770s and 1780s. Uh, and for Diderot, unlike Montesquieu, who writes extensively on, on Russia and his De l'Esprit de Roi, for example, uh, Reynal, whose work refers to him, partially informed by Diderot's commentary as well, they've never been. He goes, and he forms quite odd impressions of what he has to see, even though he is presented with a particular set of circumstances in St. Petersburg in 73, early 74. But I think more than that, because it's very easy to criticise Diderot on, on not seeing enough of the countryside, not seeing how serfs live, not uh, experiencing life beyond uh, the northern capital. More than that, he continues to ask questions about the state of why things are. And the observations are, at least as much, I think, uh, commentaries on the Nakaz itself and Catherine's writing as they are on Montesquieu and Beccaria, in other words, the inspirations. And I think that goes back to something that Tim and Russell have both said which is to say that he's never standing still. The very evocative image, perhaps, of Diderot getting up, moving around the imperial uh, sitting room, sitting back down, considering something, tapping the table, tapping a knee, getting up, moving around a game, <coughs> comes across, I think, very clearly in the Observation, which are never published. When Catherine eventually gets a hold of them after the, the great man had died uh, and they're part of his manuscript collection, she is, I think, quite disappointed with what he has to say, ignoring, I think, some of the, the complexity of, of what he has to say about her. To the end, he remains convinced that she can do great things if she remains committed to her ideas. He talks a little bit about, I suppose, to, to conjure up an image which is relevant to the, the, uh, the title of our uh, uh, panel today. He talks about the fact that she can chip away at the roots of a great immovable tree and that eventually the tree will collapse. The tree will eventually fall over and she will be able to move past seemingly immovable objects just by constantly keeping on the path that she's on. Um, so I suppose, for, for me at least, it's, it's, that, um, it's that relationship, that intellectual relationship, rather than the political relationship that the two of them explore in 73, 74. Thanks very much. That leaves us exactly 20 minutes, actually, for, for questions. So if people have got questions, we'll be very welcome um, to hear them. If you could kindly wait for the microphone to circulate so that everyone can hear what your question is. Um, yeah, perhaps the gentleman at the back there. Yes, I thank you for my dear to hear me. Um, thank you for the insights into such an incredible polymath. Even one who knew about him wouldn't have known the rest. So it's a two-part question. Um, you say that Diderot is gregarious, and yet... Um, one is struck that he must have been the most extraordinary manager. So the first part of my question is, about how about his talent for dealing with this enterprise, with the encyclopédie, his his ability to manage the articles, the plates, the manuscripts, his ability to um, collate, to to coordinate, to bring together the scholars, to bring together different attitudes, but also to illustrate in 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 the manner of the what I think are engravings. Uh, you could correct me on that. So the first part is about Diderot as a manager, and the second part is about what he managed. 
Uh, for example, in London, we can go see where Dr. Johnson built a dictionary. What can we see in Paris? What can we see that is the detritus of, of his activity? Are there the plates assembled? Are there manuscripts assembled? Are there artifacts? Is what's left of Diderot's activity putting together the encyclopedia? Thanks very much. Perhaps I could say something about the first part of your, your question in, in particular. Um, as I said at the start, I mean, Diderot used his gregariousness to good effect to recruit friends. And then when the project became a success, people wanted to be part of it. So recruiting contributors to the Encyclopédie in the later years was not usually uh, a problem. Um, anyone who was involved in the French Enlightenment wanted to be an author in that publication. He also heavily relied, though, on some key contributors, the Chevalier de Jaucourt, who wrote a fifth of all of, all of the articles. Uh, so there, were a num- there was an inner circle as well as an outer circle of contributors uh, who mattered considerably. And one should also pay tribute here to the publisher, Le Breton, who gets rather a bad press because of his silent censorship role in some of the later volumes. But he was a very good coordinator of the practical side of things, I'm referring to the technical production of the plates. Uh, And he was also prepared to stay loyal to an enterprise, because one has to remember that under the publication and censorship laws, it was the, the publishers and printers who often got it in the neck as much as the authors. So Diderot used his social, intellectual skills and blandishments to good effect. He was very hard-working. I think there's no doubt about that, despite presenting a manner that might have suggested uh, otherwise. A very good manager of time, uh, and also a good uh, recruiter of reliable uh, subordinates. I I would add uh, to what Tim has just said. um, To your first question, I'd just say that in a sense, the project was a, was a gift for him. I know it seems that it's a huge amount of work, but actually Diderot is somebody who loves other people's words. And again, it's a feature that we see in lots of his texts, that lots of his texts are based on... Um, you know, the, the last text he wrote is a kind of a sustained uh, reflection on Seneca, where, where Seneca's words weave in and out of Diderot's own reflections. Diderot is somebody whose writing thrives on an engagement with other people's words. So I think editing the Encyclopédie was the perfect job for him, because it was precisely he loved the editing, he loved the shaping, he loved the, 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 the way that sparked off his own thought process. Um, so he was unusual that he was probably a manager who enjoyed managing the people he, he managed. On the, your second question, I'd probably answer it in a slightly contrary way and say that um, uh, I think we're, I'm not aware of there being many artefacts that we can look at, but what we can look at is um, the electronic versions of the Encyclopédie. In a sense, one of the inci- exciting things about the Encyclopédie is the way it anticipates so much of modern ways of thinking about textual knowledge and hypertext and so on. So they're a fantastic, complete online version of the, uh, of the, of the French text, which has been put on, uh, put on the web. Um, so if you put into Google um, the artful A-R-T-F-L encyclopédie, that will bring up the, completely, the complete French text, entirely searchable by, by word, and there is an ongoing English translation of the encyclopédie which again is using the, 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 the wonders of technology and bringing that, the Encyclopédie, back to life. Thanks. 
Any questions? The front there. Yes, one of the key characters for me of the age was Baron Dolbach. Um, I'm interested, it's a two-part question really, I'm interested in um, um, Diderot's relationship with, close relationship with other people. Did he have any close friends? He attended Dolbach's salons, I think. And did Dolbach contribute to the encyclopedia uh, in any serious way because I seem to remember that his work was so incendiary that he published most his work was published posthumously uh, so I'd like to know the link between one of the, the great figure Dolbach and, and Diderot which the second part question was did Diderot have any particular close friends or a friend or companion throughout his life that he confided in and the chap f- uh, behind anticipated my other question um, how does the, the encyclopedia stand today? Is it, how long was it republished for? And when did it die? Does Thanks it very work? much. Um, thank you very much for the, those questions. Let me just try and make a brief comment on, on each of them. Yes, Diderot is a regular at Dolbach's uh, salon, but he does keep him to a certain extent at arm's length as far as the, the encyclopedia is uh, concerned. They do... They have many similar views on materialism, uh, for example, uh, and uh, there is correspondence between them, um, but uh, there is a certain distance as well uh, during uh, during their working careers. Um, Now, as far as close friends are concerned, one person we've not uh, mentioned so far, rarely, um, who does feature, I think, as an important influence on... uh, Diderot is Rousseau. You know, so, I mean, everyone remembers that they fell out famously in 1758 and never really spoke to one another again. But the Rousseau, or, sorry, the Diderot of the 1770s and 80s uh, is very much haunted by Rousseau's writings and by the, the memories of that lost friendship. And I think, it, uh, you know, Rousseau lies behind the scenes in a lot of Diderot's writings about colonialism, about the evils of exploitation of uh, indigenous peoples in the Pacific, uh, and all of the questions of social alienation and social division that Rousseau had famously raised in the Second Discourse and to an extent in the Social Contract. So Rousseau remains, I think, as a sort of ghost at the feast, you know, who's not actually a friend in a meaningful sense. Uh, um, but it's very much a literary influence and presence in that final decade, particularly after the return uh, from uh, St. Petersburg. Uh, and uh, going back to your, your other question uh, about the, um, the legacy of the Encyclopédie, um, it is, I mean, if, if flattery is, if, if imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, then yes, there are attempted pirated editions. Uh, there's the Encyclopédie méthodique, which, try, which updates the Encyclopédie in the later part of the uh, 18th century. Uh, and most of the encyclopedic projects in other countries pay tribute to it. Uh, there's a change in direction, really, I think, when the first edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica comes out, which is much more uh, a tribute to the achievements of British commerce, exploration, politics, and so forth, and is written with that agenda in mind. I mean, the Encyclopédie is there in the background, but in terms of the Scottish editor's priorities, it's not uh, a, a sustained tribute. Anything to add? Or? Uh, 
Uh, I have a question to Paul, uh, and uh, sorry if I'm presenting uh, well the different side uh, of history because it could be subjective aggression. So, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, well, on our side, it is known that um, Catherine took uh, Diderot's uh, advice uh, with a pinch of salt. Let's put it like this, and uh, famously said, "Well, he deals with paper; I deal with people." and uh, practically kind of uh, didn't implement a lot of his um, well, uh, instructions. How did he react to this? Uh, if, uh, uh, because he, he perhaps realized that his uh, instructions were not taken on board generally. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up this, this famous phrase. This is uh, from a, a piece correspondence with the uh, Comte de Ségur, uh, she says, you forget in all your plans for reformation the difference between our two positions. You work only upon paper, which submits to everything. It is altogether obedient and supple and opposes no obstacles, either in your imagination or to your pen. Whereas I, a poor empress, I work upon human nature, which on the contrary, irritable and easily offended. Which is fair enough, really, when you think about it. I mean, the, the problem I've got with that interpretation is that it, it suggests for a second that there was, there was a a possibility of reciprocation between the two. And what we have to remember is that Darrow is unwise enough to raise a number of issues which Catherine not only takes with a pinch of salt, but finds actively troubling in the early 1770s. He raises three in particular. Number one, he bangs on about the need for a, a reform of the succession law. Now, this is to a woman who has seized power illegally against her husband. And he says, well, you need to reform the succession law. Catherine's absolutely no way. <laughs> Two, uh, he also raises the, uh, the problem, I suppose, of serfdom. Now, Catherine's not a big fan of serfdom, and she appreciates that, yes, on, on human nature grounds, on, on natural justice grounds, this is not a good thing. On the other hand... In 1773, we have an ongoing serf uprising in the southern provinces led by Emilian Pugachev. So again, his timing is not good. And on, on the third issue, uh, he, he raises, I suppose, the possibility of uh, the, the need to avoid aggressive wars while she is busy fighting the Ottomans in the southern provinces uh, on the Black Sea coast. So it would be fair to say that uh, he's not picking his targets with, the, with a, a tactful view. And there, I think, this is a big difference between him and his, his close contemporary Friedrich Melchior Grimm. Grimm is a courtier. Grimm understands there are certain things you say at a certain time and certain things you do not mention, uh, particularly the issue of the succession in the early 1770s. Uh, and is considerably more successful in charming, listening, providing a sympathetic shoulder for Catherine as it moves forward. Um, but as I say, going back to a, an earlier point, I suppose, which I, I raised with Paul as well, you do have to wonder the extent to which she would ever have bought him in as a meaningful advisor. Because he hasn't, he hasn't got the reputation of doing that. This is a man who writes on a lot of different things. He's a compiler of information. He's a, a clever person. He's a very well-rounded, very uh, polymathic individual. But he's not an advisor. Now, we've already got one hint, and this perhaps, perhaps should have, have hinted about why he wouldn't have gone to Russia with this in mind. He advises her to pick up a guy called Mercier de la Riviere, who's a, a, a physiocrat. 
He goes out there in 1767-68 at Diderot's suggestion uh, under the impression he'd be advising her on economic matters uh, for a couple of years and then go back. Catherine quite rightly says, well, why would I talk to you for two years about the innermost workings of my economy only to have you go back to France and tell them all of my plans? So Mercier de la Riviere goes home in, you know, without any success at all. And at that point, you would think, uh, well, certainly I, I, I think, um, Diderot is aware of the practical limitations of what he can actually achieve. Um, but instead, what he wants to do is suggest. His, his, he's an ideas man. He says, why are things the way that they are? He adopts all these different positions. And he says, you have the power to do something. So that's the point of the memoranda and ultimately the observations as well. So yes, I mean, she does take him with a certain pinch of salt because he's entertaining. He's there for conversational purposes. Uh, she only has one project she asks him to work on, and that's a plan uh, for a Russian state university, or a, a university of the Russian state is what it's called, uh, and it's never acted upon. Uh, she gets him to draft it in 75, 76, and it ends up as part of his papers, which go to him. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think your characterization is absolutely right, although you're absolutely right indeed, but um, I say the expectation is not there that he is somebody who will be fundamentally useful to her in, in practical terms just to provide interesting. We've probably got time for one more question, I think, and the gentleman there's been writing. Yes, um, I wonder um, if you could comment on the role of the Diderot effect in social science. And by that I mean I'm thinking of the incident where he's in a room and he notices he has a robe and that the robe then is um, somewhat um, richer and more flamboyant than his surroundings. And he then... Um, uses observation to show that um, there's that he himself is going through a process of adaptation, and that's what I mean by the Diderot effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder um, if you see or could comment on the role of that in in social science. Mm. Do you see any connection? Certainly, by the time he gets to the 1770s, I think it would be fair to say he's an empiricist. He wants information about the way things are in order to draw his conclusions. So he's not drawn specifically to history, for example, in the way that Montesquieu is. Instead, he wants a lot of information. One of the first things he does when he's um, confronted with uh, the the Russian Academy of Sciences, he puts in uh, a request for information about Siberia. He wants more information about what's there, the number of the the population, uh, the mineral content, uh, the nature of trade, so he can form his impressions about where that will fit within the Russian Empire. Would, would that be fair, an empirical basis for his observations? Mm-hmm. Well, I was just thinking of your term, mediated truth. Mm-hmm. Here, here there seems to be mm-hmm. a, a model, and I just wonder how far it, it goes and um, why mm-hmm. it might have been ignored or who takes it up. I mean, I think it's typical of um, the kind of thought experiments that Diderot liked to share with his readers. You know, he liked, wanted to say, well, you know, is this the sort of experience you've had? Can you imagine yourself thinking in uh, the same way? And I think it goes to the heart of some of the dilemmas that run through his materialist writing, because, of course, the problem that any kind of 18th century materialist philosophy has is how you move from inert matter through to uh, 
to, to life itself. You know, how do you make that transition? There are a number of different explanations, and uh, Diderot experiments with them in a sequence of writings in the middle of his career, but never, I think, uh, achieves a satisfactory resolution of that key question, at least not one that satisfies him. So, I mean, I think that example is, is typical of his um, worrying away at questions in public that matter to him, which he thinks ought to matter to other people as well, and he wants to try and gather in their reactions. Thanks very much. I think, unfortunately, we will have to, to stop there. We could probably continue for much longer. There are just two things that I want to add at the end. Um, firstly, there are copies of Russell's translation of The Nun um, out in the lobby for those of you who have been sufficiently inspired to want to make an impulse purchase. And I do hope that uh, many of you will do that. And, um, and, um, and secondly, if we could just end by, um, by thanking the speakers who've addressed uh, us this evening.